0: Let me invite the rest of you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 7. Join me in uh, looking at a beautiful story of grace and faith as we see Jesus uh, building his kingdom in the world. So Luke chapter... Seven. As you're finding your way there, I want to share with you a little bit about one of my favorite stretches of life of ministry here within the Hallows. Our church has been around for about 10 years now. And, and in the early years of our church, we were operating out of the Fremont Baptist Church in the Fremont neighborhood. And, and with that came involvement in the Fremont Chamber of Commerce. And the Fremont Chamber of Commerce every year would host this big uh, wiffle ball tournament at BF Day Playfield, and every year the Hallows Church would submit a team or two to play in that tournament. And in the early days, I'll be honest, we dominated. Uh, we won the tournament like two years in a row. There was one year where uh, we had the first place and the second place teams uh, from that tournament, and we just dominated wiffle ball in the Fremont neighborhood. And it kind of got under the skin of a friend of mine named Sean, who owns and operates the Inniton Fitness down there in the heart of Fremont. Kind of got under his skin. So about year three, he decided to put a stop to it. But he knew that he wasn't up to the challenge and so what he did was he went to Ballard High School and he recruited the Ballard High School baseball team to come and represent Anytime Fitness at the tournament. And so Sean didn't throw a ball, he didn't swing a bat, he just stood aside and watched players far more qualified than he to take us down which they did. And so Anytime Fitness won in that third year as a result of somebody else's somebody else's work. Now, I I share that story with you today just to encourage you with the fact that the good news of the gospel is good news that calls you and I to step aside, that the work that God is doing in the world to overcome sin, sickness, suffering, and death is work that is too big for you and I to prevail in. And so the call of the gospel is to step aside and to look to the one who is far more qualified to live the life that you and I could not live and to die the death that you and I deserve to die and to rise from the grave victorious over sin, suffering, and death. This is essentially the call of the passage before us this morning as we see the example of someone who's willing to step aside. Someone who is strong, someone who is capable and competent in many areas. But he's come to a point in his life where the situation surrounding him is outside of his control. And rather than trying to grip it and rip it and take it on his own, he steps aside appealing to someone far more qualified and far more capable to take the field for him, so to speak. And to overcome this battle in his life that he would lose if not for the grace of Jesus. And so you pick up beginning in verse 1, we read of chapter 7. When Jesus had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. This is right after the message that we looked at last week. The sermon on the plane that he delivered showcasing what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And now he starts displaying the beauty of that kingdom by continuing to minister to hurting people all over the region. And so he steps into Capernaum. Verse 2. A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant." So we meet this centurion. A centurion was a military uh, captain, essentially. He was in charge of a troop of about 100 soldiers. This was a man of authority. This was a man of position. This was a man of power. That was the role he had in the area, in the era. And him being in Capernaum kind of made him a big fish in a small pond as this region of the world wasn't very populous. It didn't have a huge population. It didn't have a lot going on, but this centurion operated out of this region. And so he was a big fish in a big, in a small pond as he was probably enlisted in service of Herod Antipas, who was uh, charged by the Roman government to keep peace in the region and And so he oftentimes outsourced that responsibility to foreigners. And so this centurion probably wasn't a Roman soldier because the Romans didn't have a lot of officials kind of operating there. The Roman government kind of gave that over to Herod to kind of see to. And so a lot of times he would hire Syrians and other ethnicities to come in and to be that military force in the region. And that's likely the reason why this centurion is there. But we're told that the centurion had a servant that he highly valued, a person that he cared for. But this person, this servant was sick and he was about to die. He was facing a battle that he wasn't going to win. And the centurion recognized that though he was strong and competent, he wasn't capable of overcoming this battle in his servant's life. And so the centurion servant was sick and about to die. Matthew chapter 8, verse 6 says that this servant was paralyzed and was in terrible suffering. He was engaged in a battle that he wasn't going to win. You've heard it said, perhaps, as you've journeyed through this world, when people are struck with some kind of sickness or ailment or suffering, it's oftentimes couched in the language of being a battle. They're fighting cancer. They're fighting this or they're fighting that. We tend to, we recognize that there's something wrong with sickness and suffering. And when death is threatening us, we tend to go to war, so to speak. And we want to fight against it to overcome that which is threatening us. Now, there was a comedian who died recently named Norm MacDonald. And he battled cancer for a number of years, kind of quietly. He wasn't very public about his diagnosis and the suffering he was enduring. But one of the things he kind of worked into his comedic routine was a bit on how he hated it when people told him to fight the cancer because he believed that if cancer did prevail over him and if he were to succumb and die to this illness he he didn't want to go out of this world with a loss right and so he was going to battle it to the end but if cancer took him in the end then that meant in his mind that he wasn't strong enough he couldn't beat this disease and he couldn't because in the end cancer did take his take his life. So it's not uncommon for us to think about sickness and suffering and the threat of death in terms of a battle or a fight. But the problem is, at some point in time, sickness, suffering, and death is going to prevail over us this side of Christ's return. Does that mean that we are losing those battles? Does that mean that we are exiting this world in failure and not victory? Well, this was kind of the conflict and the struggle that the centurion is facing here his servant is sick and about to die and he wants some help he can't save his servant he can't prevail over that which is threatening his servant and so what does he do he enlists help he heard about jesus he heard about this miracle working nazarene who was displaying power and doing things the likes of which no one had seen before he was healing diseases and casting out demons doing all these wonderful things as his kingdom of god as his kingdom was being brought to bear on the world that is and so he heard about jesus and all that he was doing and he decided to to ask him for help but this centurion wasn't a wasn't a member of the Jewish people. He wasn't a worshiper of the God of Israel. So he did not consider himself worthy to go to Jesus directly. This influential rabbi, this guy whose, power, whose prominence was spreading throughout the region. So instead, he goes to the Jewish elders. The Jewish elders were likely civil authorities, civil leaders, respected uh, religious leaders in the community. And he goes to them because they know each other. And he asks them to go to Jesus on his behalf. And to ask Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And so that's what they do, picking up in verse 4. They go to Jesus, and when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, referring to the centurion, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. This is an interesting dynamic that these elders would approach Jesus, but notice what they appeal to when they're asking Jesus for help. They appeal to the man's credentials, they appeal to this man's worthiness. And what you find at work in verses four and five is what we might describe as a religious mentality a religious mentality that tends to appeal to personal credentials. When we're trying to persuade Jesus or to persuade God to do something for us. This is essentially what's at work in verse 4. He says, would you come and heal this man's servant? He's worthy of you to do this because, and then he fills in the blank with his credentials. He says that this man is a friend of the people of Israel. He's been good to us. Yeah, he may rule over us as part of an oppressive force, but at least he treats us better than the other centurions do in other regions. And so we like this guy. He's treating the people of Israel well. He's a friend of ours. But then he goes on and says that this man even built us a synagogue. So this centurion was a good man who was respected by the Jewish elders. He was a reputable man and he was a generous man. If you were to go to Capernaum today, you're going to find a synagogue that's built upon a foundation that dates all the way back to the first century. Chances are very high that that is the foundation of the synagogue that was built as a result of the resources that this centurion gave to its construction. And so, even though he wasn't a member of the people of Israel, he wasn't necessarily a worshiper of the God of Israel, he was a good man, a generous man, a reputable man. And so, when the religious leaders approach Jesus, they appeal to those credentials, they appeal to that criteria in order to get Jesus to act, in order to get Jesus to do something good for him. Now, this is the nature of the religious mentality that operates not just in people who might find themselves or describe themselves as being religious. This is the mentality that operates in the heart of every human being, whether they are religious or secular. This religious mentality that essentially says that I, if I do good, then I deserve good. Or you might even flip it the other way. If I do bad, then I'm going to work to make things right. This religious mentality that you see evident here and that operates in the hearts of so many of us. and Whether you're thinking about doing good so that you deserve good or you think about, man, I've done a lot of bad things that I got to make up for. That religious mentality is not going to lead you anywhere productive. It's not going to lead you towards life because the religious mentality in the end is all about control. It's all about gripping it and ripping it. It's not about stepping aside and trusting in someone else. It's about looking inward to find the resources you need to overcome anything that ails you in this world. So you boil it down to this matter of control and you see this popping up all over the place. I remember when we moved into this building a few months ago, we hosted a party in the park at the Wallingford Playfield. And we provided free food and all types of games and things for people to enjoy and just pulling the community together so that the community could kind of learn how to be human again and, and connect after the, you know, kind of coming out of the pandemic, so we thought or whatever the case may be. And, and so we hosted this event that everyone seemed to enjoy and many people from the community turned out for. But there was one couple that I remember that came up to me uh, before the event was over and handed me 20 $20. And I said, well, what's this for? And he says, oh, we, we, we don't want anything free. We, we just, we, we want to contribute to what's, what's happening. I said, you realize that the, the whole point of this event is just to show the neighborhood that we're here for the neighborhood and that we want to love and bless the neighborhood. And they say, yeah, yeah, we know, but we don't want, we, we, we just take this money. And, and I tried to give it back and the guy grabbed it, stuck it in my pocket, which was awkward, and, and forced me to take this uh, $20 bill as a way of him saying, look, I, I I don't want anything free. I don't want anything that would make me feel as though I'm indebted to another. And that's the dynamic of the religious mentality. The religious mentality doesn't want to be indebted to anyone or to anything. And this is why grace is such a scandalous reality. This is why grace is such a frustrating reality to the religious mentality. This is why there was a woman who was in a conversation with Tim Keller, a pastor out of a church in New York City. He's retired now, but he's doing some other things. He was having a conversation with a woman who was raised in a religious context, who believed that if she did good, she deserved good, who believed that if she did bad, then she must do good things to pay back the debt that she owed for doing bad. This was her mentality. And Keller began to explain to her the nature of grace and how and what grace is how grace means that God treats people better than they deserve, that grace means that God is entirely free from being indebted to anyone because of their good works or their good deeds or their good behavior. And grace also means that God sets people free who were indebted to him because they have fallen short of his standards and of short of his rules and short of his holy character. And, and they begin to have this conversation. And then the wills began to turn in her mind and she began to connect the dots And she responded to this understanding of grace with these words. She said, you know, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing God cannot ask of me. And this is where things kind of broke apart in her appreciation of grace. She did not want to be indebted to God in that kind of way. She wanted to hold control, which is why she rejects grace, rejected grace at the end of that conversation. See, grace is a scandalous reality because it means that you and I are not in control. It means that in our relationship with God, appealing to personal credentials carries no weight. That in our relationship with God, we do not appeal to that which is good in us or that which is good about us or about anyone else. In our relationship with God, we can only appeal to His credentials, His grace towards us. This is the dynamic of the story. The centurion was a good man relatively speaking. He was a good man in the sense that he was generous. He blessed Israel by helping build a synagogue. He was a reputable man who carried about his, who carried out his duties as a centurion, as a captain in the military well and responsibly. So he was a respected guy. But notice how the story unfolds where where the religious elders, these Jewish elders, appeal to this man's credentials, but then the story is going to continue where Jesus essentially says that that's not why he's going to treat this man's servant well. That he's not going to respond on the basis of this man's credentials. He's going to respond on the basis of his grace. And this is a lesson that is really hard for sinners and sufferers like us to learn. It's really hard for us to accept the grace of God, recognizing that even the best parts about us still require the grace of Jesus to cover. In the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Isaiah who learned this lesson well. Isaiah was a man who was a prophet. He served the Lord faithfully in the temple. He oversaw uh, the, the prayer offerings, and he was a part of all the sacrificial dynamics that were taking place in the temple. And one day, Isaiah was hanging out in the temple when the Lord appeared to him. And he had an encounter with the Lord. And, and as this encounter unfolded, and he saw, caught this vision of the Lord and these seraphim worshiping God and celebrating his holiness and praising his glory. He's, we're told in Isaiah 6 that the walls of the temple began to shake and the place started to fill with smoke and ash and dust and all this stuff started happening. And Isaiah, who was a good man, he was a prophet serving in the temple. When all of that went down, he began to recognize the incompatibility between him and his creator, between this holy glorious God and him as a fallen, frail human being. And what's interesting is that the very first thing Isaiah says in response to this moment was woe is me. He said, "Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips." Now, the reason why he would say that is kind of twofold. One, the lips were attached to the heart. So when Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, we know that Jesus also taught that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so he's saying, essentially, look, my heart isn't entirely pure. There are things deep within my heart that you might not be able to see, but they're not good. And so he would recognize that and he would affirm that in that instance. But there's another reason why he would say that. Isaiah was a prophet who served the Lord, how? By speaking. His lips were the instrument of how he served the Lord. And in this moment, Isaiah is saying that the very best, about, best thing about him, the most faithful thing about him, the most righteous thing about him, his lips, his mouth as a spokesperson for the Lord, he's saying that even that requires God's grace to cover. Because he was a man of unclean lips. That his lips, as good as they were, they weren't good enough. And this is what he when he begins to experience grace. Because the Lord then dispatched one of those angels, one of these fiery angelic beings to the altar. And the angel goes to the altar, takes out a burning coal, comes to Isaiah and touches his lips. And the Lord is saying to this prophet, look, my grace is going to cover not just what's worst about you. My grace is going to cover what's best about you. And so we consider that when you step in. As Isaiah would continue to write words from the Lord. He would get all the way to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And Isaiah, as he's learning these dynamics of grace and how, what, what grace is, he says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like something unclean in all of our righteous acts. That is the best parts about us. He says are like polluted garments. They're tainted on some level. He said, all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. He's saying we need grace to cover not just what's wrong with us. We need grace to cover even what's right about us. This is why we can say there are good people in the world, relatively speaking. But we also say that every person on the planet needs the grace of God, that the religious mentality carries no water, carries no weight in our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul would learn this. Before Paul met Jesus, he served the Lord with zeal. He was a Pharisee. He He was a very influential Jewish man within that religious sect. But then he met Jesus and his mentality changed as the gospel just blew up his religious mentality. So much so that listen to how he would talk about the best parts about him in relationship with Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, he would write these words. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh. In other words, if anyone else thinks that they can be right with God uh, because of their goodness or because of their righteous acts or because of who they are naturally. He says, I have more. Relatively speaking, I'm better than them. He said, I have circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul was in a class all by himself. He was a good man by the religious standards of his day. But then notice what he says, that everything that was a gain to me, I have now, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. He's saying that the very things that he would be tempted to appeal to and saying, these are my assets in my relationship with the Lord, these assets have now become liabilities. I count them loss. The best parts about me do nothing for me in my relationship with the Lord. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Of just being bathed in the grace of the gospel, being bathed in his love that comes to us unconditionally. He goes on, because of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung. I've lost my religious standing amongst the Jewish people, but that's okay. I don't need those things anyway. They think I'm a blasphemer now because I'm worshiping Jesus, but he's saying that's okay. Because all the assets, all the things that I held on to to form my identity and to account for my relationship with the Lord, all of those assets are now liabilities. And they become liabilities because Paul, like many of us, would be tempted to put his faith in his credentials rather than in his Christ. And Paul's saying, I'm not going to do that. My faith will rest in Christ and in Christ alone. I'm not going to appeal to anything good about me. Because my religious mentality is being destroyed and dismantled by the grace of the gospel. And this is what we begin to see, again, coming back to the story of the centurion. You look at verse 6, Jesus is kind enough to come in the centurion's direction. He's moving towards the centurion. He says, Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof... That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this and he does it. And so we begin to see a contrast between the Jewish elders and the centurion soldier. The Jewish elders showcased a religious mentality. But this centurion, when he comes to Jesus, or when Jesus comes to him rather, you see the requisite humility. You see the requisite humility, the way he's responding to Jesus. He's affirming the fact that he is not worthy, that Jesus should not heal his servant on the basis of his credentials. He's saying, I wasn't worthy to come to you. I'm not really worthy to have you come into my house. His response is a lot like Peter's. When Peter realized that Jesus is the son of God, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was the Christ, Peter responded by saying, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I, I, I can't be with you. I'm not worthy to be with you. And yet, this, Jesus stayed with him and he stuck with Peter. And Jesus is going to stay with the centurion. He's going to stick with the centurion. He's going to do something for the centurion, not because the centurion is worthy, Not in response to his credentials, but in response to his own. And so the centurion begins to express faith. First, he says, requisite humility. I am not worthy to have you do anything like this, but I know something about authority. He said, I'm in authority and I know that that which I'm in charge of, I can speak to and they're going to do what I say because I'm in charge and have authority over that. And he's saying, I understand authority because, Jesus, I'm I'm beginning to see something about who you are. And I'm beginning to sense something about the type of authority you have. And so he asked Jesus to speak a word that would bring healing to his servant. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 9. We're told that Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found their servant in good health. The requisite humility and the expression of faith that this centurion is making in Jesus's direction drew amazement out of Jesus. He saw this man's faith and he was amazed by it. There's only two times in all of the gospel where Jesus is amazed. One is in Mark chapter 6 when he's rejected from Nazareth and his own people literally kicked him out of the town and did not want to embrace him as the Messiah, did not see him for who he is. We're told that he was amazed by that unbelief. But here in Luke 7, Jesus is amazed by belief. He's amazed by the type of faith that this man is exercising. It's a faith that says, look, I'm not going to trust in my credentials I'm going to trust in your credentials. That's saving faith. That's what it looks like to step aside. When you're refusing to step aside, you're constantly appealing to your own credentials for your status with God. But when you come to see who Jesus is and get an understanding of what grace is all about, what you do isn't you stay here. You step aside and you appeal to someone else's authority, someone else's credentials. That's how you become a Christian. So if you're here this morning or you're listening in online and you don't yet know, have a relationship with God that is giving you life and joy and peace and hope, then your response today is to step aside. Stop depending upon your credentials as good as they may be in comparison to others. Surrender your credentials and put your faith in the credentials of another. This is what the centurion does. This is what amazes Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I haven't seen this kind of faith anywhere. And it's surprising because the centurion wasn't a Jewish man This centurion belonged to an oppressive force that was occupying territory that did not belong to those. And yet Jesus is still amazed by this man's faith. He's come to a point where he's saying, look, I'm not going to appeal to my credentials. I'm going to appeal to yours for the healing of my servant. And so really what you find towards the end of this story, this story is the first in a Series of stories that are stitched together, all driving to answer one question. And that one question is Who is Jesus? What are his credentials? Why is Jesus the Savior? Why is Jesus the one that we worship? Why is Jesus the one that we insist people put their faith in? Why is that? Who is this Jesus? That's the question this story and all the stories or several stories that are coming afterwards are driving at answering. And so if you're someone here today wondering who is Jesus, or maybe you're someone who knows Jesus and you need to be reminded of just how gracious Jesus is, let me, let me answer that question for you in three ways in light of this story. As you live by faith, not in your own credentials, but in the credentials of Jesus. As you live by faith, constantly stepping aside and appealing to Jesus in every moment of every day, in every situation, in every circumstance, appealing to Jesus' help, his power, his strength, his provision. As you live that way, let me remind you of who, who it is that you're deferring to. Well, the first thing I would tell you about Jesus is that Jesus is sovereign over every hint of suffering that exists in the world. That what this man says about Jesus, that he has the authority over his servant's illness, is true. And Jesus is amazed by that. And the centurion even says, look, you don't even have to come touch him. You can just speak a word from where you are and my servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus flexed his authority. He showcased his sovereignty in healing this servant, this man that was very valuable to the centurion. So we want to say that Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, but this might raise some questions in your mind. Is Well, if Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, if he's capable of healing people who are on their deathbed, why didn't he heal so-and-so when they were on their deathbed? Why does he heal in some instances but not in others? And if he is sovereign over all suffering, how do you put all that together? How do, you, how do you rest in his grace in light of the fact that not every person is healed? This side of heaven. Well, I would encourage you to think about it this way. When we say that Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, we're affirming a bedrock truth of the Christian faith, a bedrock truth resting at the heart of our understanding of who God is and what God is doing in our lives. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so there are moments. When the Lord sees reason and purpose for bringing healing in response to the faith of those, faith being exercised by those who are looking to Him for help, but there are times when He refrains and He doesn't bring immediate healing and relief to the suffering and the ailments that someone might be experiencing. But if we believe that Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, we can rest assured that there's coming a day when He takes that terrible thing and He works it together for the good of all of His people everywhere. And that good may be manifested in this life or that good may be manifested in the next life. It's kind of like baking chocolate chip cookies. You know, chocolate chip cookies are made up of different ingredients. Not every ingredient on its own tastes very good. You're not going to take a spoonful of baking soda and swallow it easily. You're not going to go Rocky Balboa on a a raw egg and drop it down your your gullet. You're not going to do that. But you're going to take that egg, you're going to take that baking soda, you're going to put it with some flour, some sugar, some butter, perhaps some milk, some chocolate chips, whatever the case may be. You're going to mix it together, work it together, put it in the oven, and there's coming a day, there's coming a moment when delicious chocolate chip cookies pop out of the oven. Well, this is what we're getting after. When we say that Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, we are affirming the fact that Jesus will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That he will work through the bad things that we experience and endure. That we might not experience relief from right now. And he's going to work through the good things that we experience right now. He's going to put it all together to accomplish his purposes that will prevail. The good and the bad. Jesus is sovereign over every, every aspect of it. Now... Let me say a word about the role of faith and healing and all these dynamics. There are times when Jesus does bring healing into the here and now, and he alleviates, alleviates the suffering and the sickness and the ailment of someone we might know. And in every case, when Jesus brings that type of healing, it's always, there's always, faith is always at work in the equation. Faith is never absent when God's power is on display in the world. Which is why we always want to believe. We always want to trust. We don't want to be, we don't want to amaze Jesus by being unbelievers. We want to amaze Jesus by trusting and believing him through thick and thin. And so Jesus would say even the faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. It doesn't take a lot of faith to see God's power displayed in your life. Mustard seed faith can shake the world. And so Jesus can bring healing. He can showcase his sovereignty, giving us flashes and tastes of the kingdom of God right here, right now, by bringing healing and relief as he sees fit. But he always does it because faith is operating on some level. So if you don't believe Jesus is sovereign over suffering, you don't really have much to draw on when you're asking him to do the impossible. When you're praying to him, asking him to heal someone you love or to help someone who's hurting, to bring relief, what are you appealing to in that moment? You're appealing to the fact that he can. And you're going to trust him with however he answers those prayers. That's what faith does. So Jesus is sovereign over all suffering, but we also want to say that Jesus is the servant of all peoples. The healing that comes in this story comes in response to a centurion soldier, a non-Jewish man. And we're given a glimpse here of how the gospel is good news for all people everywhere, not just the Jewish people, not just one race, not just one ethnicity. The gospel is good news for all people everywhere, that the kingdom of God is a multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom. And so Jesus is showcasing that by healing this centurion's servant, saying, look, my blessing comes not just to Jewish people. My blessing is for all people. Regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity. But then you go even further and recognize that the healing came to a servant in the centurion's household. That God's blessing transcends socioeconomic status. We read last week, blessed are the poor for the kingdom of God shall be theirs. Blessed are those who are of low estate. The kingdom of God can break through to them and be for them. we're seeing that displayed here as Jesus is proving to be the servant of all peoples. Regardless of their race, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their status, the kingdom of God can break through and bring blessing to all people everywhere. But then finally, what we want to see about who Jesus is in light of this text, not only is he sovereign over all suffering, the servant of all peoples, I really want your heart to revel in the fact that Jesus is the true and better soldier, that he is the true and better centurion, What this means is, is that Jesus goes to war on behalf of those who step aside. Jesus fights for those who aren't trying to fight for themselves, but who are willing to step aside and defer to his power, to his credentials, to his salvation. Recognizing that only he is the one capable of defeating sin, defeating sickness, defeating death. So Jesus is the true and better soldier who fights on behalf of his people. This is what he is doing when he's riding on that colt entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's going to war, but he's going to war in a way that you and I would never have expected because he's not riding a war horse coming with a sword. No, in that instance, he's riding on a colt in humility, in service. He's coming to fight for his people, but he's going to fight in a Trojan horse kind of way. And so he would enter Jerusalem on the back of a colt, coming in humility, coming as a servant. And then he would go to the cross on Good Friday. And you know that when he is hung upon the cross, he's invading enemy territory. He's fighting for sinners and sufferers like you and I by enduring the very things that afflict our lives right now, namely sin, suffering, and death. He's saying, look, I've come to experience all of this. I'm going to succumb to it because I'm the one who's capable of overcoming it. And that's what you're going to celebrate next week on Easter Sunday. That after Jesus was crucified, he was placed in a tomb. But then three days later, he steps out of the tomb victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Victorious over suffering and ailment. He's coming. He steps out of the tomb as the victorious warrior. As the one who wins. As the one who wins the war that you and I could never win ourselves. And so we live our lives now stepping aside and putting our faith in his credentials. Recognizing that he did the very things that you and I could never do ourselves. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is to say, hey, look, step aside Don't appeal to your credentials and your relationship with God. Don't appeal to your credentials and your efforts to overcome sin, suffering, and death. Step aside and appeal to the credentials of Christ. This is why we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus. Look to Jesus over and over and over again because your life is blessed. It is graced not because of what you do and how well you do it. Your life is graced because of what Jesus has done and how well he did it. So we put our faith in Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see the sufficiency of Christ crucified and risen? Jesus, help us to see you as you are and to recognize your credentials, that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Savior that we need. So thank you, Jesus, for living a life of perfect obedience, loving your heavenly Father completely. Thank you, Jesus, for living a life where you showed what compassion looks like as you loved your neighbor as yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling the law in that regard. And thank you, Jesus, for surrendering to the cross and stepping into that moment where you would give up your life, enduring suffering and being put to death. We thank you, Jesus, for dying. And yes, Jesus, we thank you this morning for rising from the grave, for stepping out of the tomb victorious over all that afflicts our lives and ails our lives in the here and now. We thank you, Jesus for resurrecting from the grave. And we now put our faith in you. We put our hope in you. We put our trust in you. We are appealing to your grace and to your grace alone for all things in this life. God, we love you and pray that you'd help us to, to do that even now with whatever needs we have in our lives. God, we love you and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.